we designed Faro, we launched it on Kickstarter, and we sold more Faro in two weeks than we sold the Snow Helmet in two seasons. Welcome to Fundraising Demystified, the podcast where we uncover the untold stories of successful founders who have raised venture capital to bring their visions to life. Join me, Jason Kirby, your host, as we dive into the hidden truths of the fundraising game. We'll explore different strategies, tactics, lessons learned from these entrepreneurs who have figured out how to win the fundraising game in their own way. Whether you're a budding entrepreneur, just getting started, or an established founder looking to scale your business, this podcast equips you with the knowledge and inspiration to conquer the fundraising landscape. Welcome to episode 14 of Fundraising Demystified, the podcast where we uncover the untold stories of startup founders who have raised capital to bring their visions to life. Join me, Jason Kirby, as I interview these founders and dive into the untold hidden truths of how they got funded. Today, we have Juan Garcia Mencia, CEO and co-founder of Unit One, a safety hardware company providing smart safety for urban mobility. They raised a $3.5 million Series A for a total of $6.6 million raised. We discussed the importance of Kickstarter for getting the company off the ground, raising a total of 750K in pre-sales, how they had to pivot during COVID, and how raising too many rounds led to a difficult cap table and so much more. Let's go ahead and get started. Hey everyone, welcome back to the show. Today I'm excited to introduce Juan Garcia Mencia with us today. Uh, he's going to be the founder of Unit One, and I'm super excited to have him bring on the show. One, his product designer background, his products are beautiful, and we're going to hear about his story of you know pivoting to the product he is today. Um, Yo, know, Juan, thanks for joining the show. Jason, thanks for having me. Excited to be here. Yeah, no, this is awesome. Now, what would be great is if you can just give the audience a little bit of a background on how you became a uh, you know, product designer to where you are now, where you've successfully closed a three and a half million dollar series A. What's that journey been like? And just kind of give us a little bit of a, that story. So um, I started out as a product designer, industrial designer, specifically uh, doing product design back in Argentina. That's where I'm from. Uh, I was I was having time in my life there, uh, designing all sorts of crazy stuff. And uh, I ended up partnering up with my then boss, to kind of build for the first time, instead of designing products for, for someone else, uh, we just decided to design our own product and build a company around that. Uh, so we set out to do that. I partnered up with them very, very soon after uh, we, we added a third, our third co-founder, Francisco, who provided a very much needed business background because two designers are in a company that can be I can get tricky. And then with that kind of a balance in place, we, we set out to, to design a product, build a product, fund it, at least fund its production, uh, build the brand around it, you know, launch it, build it, sell it, the whole works. Um, we had a pivot in the middle. I'm, I'm happy to discuss in a minute. And then long story short, we now find ourselves in the urban mobility space, uh, designing and building safety accessories for all of cycling with a focus on the heavy focus on design and safety through tech. So we use tech to make our products safer and make our riders safer. Ultimately, what we want is to, you know, put more, more butts on bikes and take people away from cars, uh, help them adopt cycling as a, as a lifestyle and, you know, 
push them a little bit, a little bit of a push from our part to, to, to kind of promote this, this lifestyle altogether, make it safer, make it easier to adopt. Well, I'm excited to have you on the show because as a cyclist and e-skater myself, uh, and a, a worrisome wife who wants me to be safe all the time, I will say you have probably one of the sexiest and safest helmets I've seen on the market. And, Thank you. uh, yeah, excited to, you know, kind of learn how this, this journey got started. So let's, you kind of gave us a little, you know, shortened down version. What I really like to understand is, you know, what was that first product kind of before the pivot and, you know, what was that story like? Cause you raised some money for that and then you had to kind of transform the business to what you guys are today. So tell us a little bit about that origin story. Yeah. So I was, um, I was, I, I'm a lifelong skier. I always loved the snow and. So the, our first product kind of came from there. Um, big fan of, of listening to music uh, while skiing. Big fan of skiing in a group, um, you know, walkie-talking one another. So I, I, was, I, I was a ski instructor in Vail uh, one season. And uh, classic, you know, aha moment after trying all sorts of different gizmos for, for actually listening, listening to music or communicating comfortably amongst others here's and I just identify this super concise pain point as is here that was unsolved because I had tried everything from AirPods to audio kits to you, you freaking name it. So that was a very clear product problem that needed to be solved, which is essentially the perfect input you can give a product design that's that's a product design that's looking for a problem to solve. That's what what a product does anyway. So we kind of use that as fuel. And it ended up being this unique skiing snowboard helmet with headphones that you could detach for after skiing. And then you had this pretty big and sturdy interface that you could use with gloves on for volume and just uh, track control. And there's, there was walkie-talkie amongst friends and all the stuff that we, that we always wanted to have and never could. We put on a product, uh, we designed that, we put it on Indiegogo back then because we thought it was a good idea. Uh, the campaign was not successful, not even, not even remotely. And we still believe that it was, it was a, a product worth doing. So we pretty much froze those funds. I, I think it was like 50 K. So it's not, it's not going to cover the molds even. So no, nowhere nearly enough. So we froze that money. We said, okay, well, never going to get anywhere with that. So we, um, we literally looked for an accelerator that could take us to the next level, take us to a place where we could actually raise around. We were lucky to be uh, drafted by the first ever edition of the lead sports accelerator in Berlin, uh, founded by the, the, the family of uh, the Adidas um, grandchildren, Adidas news grandchildren. So the Adidas family was behind this thing. Uh, it was sports oriented, hits, uh, they're taking us. And so. From there, we, we ended up raising our first round to go and build this thing. Um, only then we, we released the, the funds for, for the campaign. We told, them, we told them, hey, so this is going to take a while longer because we, we ended up having to fund this elsewhere. Uh, and we actually offered refunds to everyone. It's like, hey, do you, want, do you still want to wait for it or you, you want your money back? Because uh, we hadn't used it. And thankfully, everyone said, said okay, I'll wait. So we, we ended up using it. And we... We did the works. We, we went to China to, to build suppliers from scratch. Uh, very scary moment, uh, but also memorable in a, in a ton of ways. But lots of fun stories there. 
uh, scary moments too. But then, yeah, we, we, so we built our supplier uh, network from scratch. We built that product. We manufactured it. We started selling it to some success. We sold out one season, a small batch, and we sold another season. Uh, we sold out, again, smaller batches. And we were kind of starting to ramp up, uh, starting, we started identifying some issues in the product that we, what we wanted to solve to, you know, take it to the next level, probably gen two or something. And then, uh, all ski resorts in the world closed overnight. And we have, we have one product seasonal that we couldn't sell for the pursuit for the foreseeable future. We had about 500 K in the can, in the account intended to make more of these helmets. And we said, this is too risky. It's like, we're going to, we could very well die on top of a pile of helmets that we can't sell. So we told our investors, we need to, you know, pump the brakes and we need to, to figure out a way to, to navigate this that ends up in a different place. Cause remember, I mean, picture early days of the pandemic, knowledge was scarce. Everyone was scared. No one knew what exactly was going to happen. And all we knew was that every resort was closed and we couldn't sell our single product. That's enough to more than enough to kill, to kill any startup, basically. That is quite the journey. And there's a couple of things I want to kind of point out here that I think are interesting about this, this journey that you've been through, of you know, first identifying the, the prop, you know, kind of a personal pain point and, you know, kind of building on from that point, bringing together people around you, people that you trust and, you know, kind of solve certain gaps in the business. And then eventually, you know, getting a product, you know, to market, dealing with the challenges that, you know, maybe the Indiegogo is going to be a home run. That's all you ever need. But reality, it necessarily wasn't. And, but wise enough to go out, find the right type of investor, not necessarily pitching VCs at this stage, or you're finding you know, an accelerator no, that knows we're bidding early. And you found perfect alignment you know, in terms of uh, the Adidas accelerator. And so it sounds like you had an incredible, like, learning journey to get to this point. And then the world just kind of kicked you in the face and, you know, you quickly reacted to that as opposed to being like, oh, everything's going to be fine, which, you know, we look back three years now and it's like, oh, it wasn't, you know, we all survived. Well, not everyone, but I guess, uh, you know, when we look at the, you know, scenario of the decisions that you made and giving you the opportunity to like, hey, we still have some cash. What can we do this? Let's not, let's not pile up in more inventory when we don't know what the future is, especially because. You know, you got to hold out for at least a year, you know, just kind of given the uh, the market climate. Maybe you could sell down to South America, you know, the Southern Hemisphere. It, 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 it ended up being even more than that. It ended up being uh, almost two seasons. I mean, Northern Hemisphere, not, I'm not talking North winter, uh, North, South, North, South, but two Northern Hemisphere seasons. It would have killed us. I can tell you now. Yeah, easily. And, and what are you going to do? You just sit on your hand. Like you can't, you know, so you, you made a smart decision. You basically communicated to your investors, which is another point I want to point out to our listeners of like, you're not doing this in a silo. A lot of people bottle this up, get scared, don't know what to do. And, but it sounds like you took the right step. You communicated to your shareholders and um, stakeholders and yeah, let's, let's continue. So obviously since then you've, you've had some success. It's been a couple of years since that point. Uh, you have a new product in the market. You've had some Kickstarters. So let's, let's talk about, you know, this new journey of discovering, you know, post pivot. Yeah, sure. So we took that half a million we had reserved for, for more inventory and we set it out for designing and developing a new product in a new space that had, that was going to use some of, some of the, the, the 
supplier network that we had built, some of the knowledge that we had accrued. Otherwise, it was, was going to be a hard reset. Like we kept the brand, we kept most of our suppliers, we, we kept a lot of stuff, shareholders, team, you name it. We kept all, all that we could and we were, we were trying to be as smart as we possibly could in terms of where to go. And uh, we, we had originally envisioned to, to go into the urban space at some point, but we just brought it up way in advance and we said, okay, it's not going to be an additional space. We're going to make a full switch. It's going to be snow, no more hollow urban mobility. It was a hard call. I don't want to, I can't claim credit for it. This, this, this originated um, in Francisco, my co-founder, and it was a hard sell even for me. Like I was, uh, I was in love with the snow. It was, I was, a, 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 you know, lifelong here. I had built this from the heart, from that special place. And it was just ripping me out of there was, was painful. And I wasn't, a, I wasn't even a cyclist back then. So I had, you know, as a designer, I didn't have nowhere, anywhere, you know, close as a, you know, a strong uh, link as I had with the snow. It was very hard for me to be, feel empathy or a relationship to this new world that we were getting into because I wasn't part of it yet. So I was the first one that needed convincing actually, before even talking to the investors. Once we were, all us three, three founders were on board. We told the, the investors, hey, we, we got to make this, this move. It's going to be urban mobility. It's going to have, it's going to be a helmet. Yes, there's going to be some tech in it as we had on the snow helmet before. That's all we can tell you, right? Cannot, I cannot give you more because we don't have more. And they were somewhat receptive to the idea. Um, some of them asked like a bike helmet, like really? We, we didn't get into, into unit one for, for biking there. Certainly they didn't, we, we weren't either, but what is it going to have? And like, no clue, just trust us that we will make something that is cool. That solves an actual problem. Same as before, same process, only in a different space. So they, they trusted us and, and we charged on and in the middle of the pandemic, we designed and developed Faro, which was a challenge in itself because it was zoom calls. I it was the new, uh, the, the new reality very early on, which for product development can get tricky. So we learned how to do that. We designed Faro, we launched it on Kickstarter and we sold more Faro in two weeks that the, the, we, we sold the snow helmet in two seasons. And at that point, everyone was on board like, you go ahead now, you're, you're good to go. And I'm like, okay, this is clearly the reception that we intended. And it just blew, blew, blew apart. It was just so well received and we never looked back. And one, like, I guess, what was that timeline from like the world's burning, you know, every, you know, COVID's taking over the world and now you have proven this new product, this pivot has worked. March to October. That's not bad. Okay. Not bad to, to conceptualize a whole new product initiative and generate revenue, uh, substantially more revenue than your previous endeavors is an incredible feat. And personally, I, yeah, I've seen this happen. And I also went through in the pandemic pandemic forced a lot of businesses to like figure their stuff out very, very quickly. Yeah. And, uh, it sounds like you guys came out on the other side. And so. From the, the journey to, you know, all right, sales are working, investors are behind you now, um, you're growing revenue, 
where are you guys at now? You just recently closed your Series A. Kind of get us, you know, caught up to this point in terms of uh, where you guys are on the capital side of the yeah. business. Sure. So we so we um, we launched Faro into the market uh, after the Kickstarter. Uh, we went ahead and built the thing, manufactured it, um, started. Um, we put out our first batch. We sold out. We put out our second batch, sold out as well. Uh, Revity started growing, and we finally checked all the boxes that we that we needed for Series A. Essentially, were us solidifying the the actually landing on this new space. Um, our our cheap tip of the spear product um, finding product market fit was also a, a big one. We we needed a big check that we needed, uh, and then. Uh, the team started. The team started growing around this, and we were at a point where we said, "Okay, this is solid enough to build upon. Solid enough, solid enough that we have figured out the the main aspects of this business, and we're in in a position that is solid enough to grow it." That was that was originally going to happen this year. So um, this going to it was going to happen late twenty twenty three. We're we were we had because of the. The world was in a bit of turmoil. You know, the the war, the Ukraine. It was it was, it was a tricky year to fundraise twenty twenty two, and we said, uh uh-uh. uh. So this is not the moment to, to open our Series A. Let's just postpone it to late twenty twenty three. That was the, that was the play. And we were good. We were good in that play. But and and you will find for for good or worse that our Series A round was not the way it's supposed to happen or the way it usually happens. It was a bit of a, a good surprise in that sense. So we were, you know, gearing up for the hardest race at the most challenging moment, but it ended up being, I'm not going to say smooth sailing because that's, that's bullshit. It doesn't, it doesn't exist, but it was, it ended up being less terrible than, than, than we imagined. Probably we were lucky, but timing wise, it ended up being just the right place and the right time kind of thing. So we. We weren't raising. Uh, Fire was doing really well. We were launching new products always through Kickstarter. We use that not right now, not because we need it, but because it's a great validation channel and it's a sales channel in which you can sell a product eight, nine months before it sees a lot of day. No other channel lets you do that. So we kind of use that. It's, it's, a, it's a great sounding board from way, way before hitting market. We usually make a lot of tweaks. This is a very tough demographic. So if, if you please those guys, you're probably going to be okay in the market. Um, so we were launching new products around Faro. We were, we were building this ecosystem of safety accessories to connect to each other and kind of build, you know, build up your safety uh, from multiple angles. That was doing well. We decided to postpone the round because number one, we could. And number two, it was 2022 was, was not the right year to, to trace. Oh, we all we all knew that. So we so we we got introduced to a VC from uh, one of our old investors, one of the guys who had seen through the the entire snow pivot urban stage. So we kind of we had a relationship with these guys at this point, um, and they're like the rich uncles that you you love and they have supported you from from really very very early on. So we we, we love these guys at this point. And so we got introduced to a VC right, right after we moved to Spain. Oh, that, that too. It was like, we, we knew that we can run this from Argentina pretty early on. So we, we knew that we wanted to be closer to our markets, closer to our markets, closer to our capital. 
So that was either Europe or the States. We operate in both markets equally strongly. We ended up here in Madrid uh, setting up our, our HQ whilst our product design and software teams remain in Argentina. We have our HQ here for all, all stuff that is strategic, commercial, uh, high-level content too happens here. And then, of course, China for manufacturing. But I'm, I'm, I'm derailing. So we weren't going to raise, and we got this introduction at the worst moment. It's like, I'm getting introduced to a very, you know, a nice match of a, of a VC at the worst moment. We weren't nearly close to opening around, but we obviously took their call anyways. Right? What you're going to do, you don't, you don't say no to these guys. So we took the call. It was, uh, the, the fund was, the BC was Slingshot, Slingshot Ventures, Netherlands-based consumer product oriented BC. Perfect for us. Uh, they have this really cool mantra that they, their, their LPs are exited founders. So they have this, like this nice full circle kind of a thing. And I think it's, it's a more empathic approach than most VCs because of that. And we, 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 we had a couple of chats. They loved what, what we were doing. We loved their approach, but it was like, Hey guys, listen, we're, we're not raising right now. We're not going to be raising for at least a year. Let's just keep in touch. So what we did, and I think this proved probably the, the genius move. We didn't know it was a move back. We just send them investor reports, kept them in check, you know, send them updates almost monthly, sometimes even more. And pretty much, I mean, they were seeing us work without investing and they, you know, eventually started seeing that our promises eventually materialized that we were in full shit, that we were hard workers. And I think enough of their boxes were checked uh, internally because we didn't know. And at one point they said, uh, they called us up and, it's, and they said, uh, late 2022, again, we weren't raising. They said, open the round. I was like, okay, but <laughs> you know, this is still a sucky time for fundraising, remember? I mean, we have to fill the thing. Whether, whether or not you come in, we still have to fill the whole thing. It's, it's supposed to be more than 3 million. It's, you know, it's a big round to fill, at least for us. Um, they said, open the restaurant. So we got into that uh, and they were masterminding a play that we didn't see back then. Uh, they brought in another uh, co-investor to lead the round, uh, Ponuk. Ponuk happens to be the, the VC arm of the Pong family. The Pong family, the, the Pong, Pong group, owns, well, they're super diversified. They're this huge, um, Netherlands based group. They have businesses in the automotive energy sectors, but they own half of the bike brands, you know, like, I think they're 20 something. So for an accessory company for cycling to have pawn indirectly in your cap table, is just, just, you know. A dream is this yeah. yeah yeah it was a big deal it's like okay this is a strategic that is coming in this changes things and they were co-leading the round with slingshot they didn't fill up the whole thing um but we also had existing investors that had proratus coming in a convertible that was open and then they also brought in a, a smaller a bc fund also super interesting approach uh joint capital they manage the wealth, the investments, I, sh I should say, of retired athletes that they're, you know, 
they, they've done well in their careers. They, most of them retire early as far as age is concerned. Like some, some of them are like, you know, 30 and they're retired is super young and super active. And what I'm going to do with all this money. Right. So they kind of teach them to invest. It's a pretty cool ecosystem they have. So they, they got in there as well. And between all of them, yeah, it was 3.5 million. So there's a lot to, to share and highlight on this point from basically focusing head down on a business that went through a pretty tragic pivot, not tragic, but like, you know, complicated, difficult pivot. Yeah. And it, it putting your head down and just focusing on product market fit, like building the best product you can for what ended up being probably a much larger audience, more lucrative audience potentially than, you know, just the snow, uh, the snow audience. And, you know, something that I like to call out, cause like you said that the round went smoother and easier, and I'm sure there's some like hidden details that, you know, you know, come up. It's never always perfect when raising a round, but Hard basically the VC came to you and set everything up and got things going. This is like a dream case. This is like, oh, wouldn't that be nice as many founders might be listening, you know, kind of saying, but you did a lot of things right. You know, you took meetings early, you know, before you were raising, you established rapport and relationship over an extended period of time. But the most important piece is you shared updates saying you were going to do X and you did X, you know, like you, you say you're going to do one thing and then you actually do it. And that's probably one of the most powerful ways to build trust with a VC and a relationship over time that founders just, uh, not all, but like, you know, a lot of founders have really struggle with this concept of, they think that I want money now, I'm going to start talking to VCs and what they don't realize is no, you need to be building these relationships months, months in advance, if not yeah. a year or two in advance before you actually open the round. Because they just need to build trust with you. They need to see what you've been up to. They need to see you hit on deliverables and they need to be able to believe in you. And that's what you guys executed. And that's phenomenal. And you should definitely pat yourself on the back along with your team. So when it came to this, you kind of, uh, the, the, the cats in this case, the, the VCs got herded for you. And you know, when it came to kind of negotiating terms, you know, given it was not, it was a very different market from you know, 2021 and 2020. How did you guys feel about the negotiation, the terms, um, and, and just how things kind of came out for you on the other side? Um, and, and kind of where does it enable you to go now as a company? So it was, they were, I, I, I got to say, you know, you always picture, so this was our first institutional round. Before that, we, we only dealt with family offices, uh, very wealthy private investors, um, the accelerator, which has its fun, but it's, it's different, right? It's, it's none of the, none of them were a proper institutional VC. So you kind of build up this scary image of VCs over time. And I was, I was not happy about that part going in. So that's what we expected, right? That the big, bad, hairy wolf coming, you know, stumping at your door, demanding crazy stuff from you. And to be honest. What we ended up receiving was, don't take me wrong, very diligent investors. Like they were stirring. Due diligence was borderline traumatic on the founding team and some of the senior staff. Um, we, we didn't sleep for like six days. I think we, I think, not that I recommend it, but it, it always ends up happening. I think we slept like six hours over, I don't know, four days. It was not good. We, we did it. I mean, I think it was part of the deals. Like they asked for a lot of things 
very shortly, like without a lot of lead time, because if you don't have it, you can't fake it. That's that, that, that's, that, that's my tip. I haven't asked them yet, actually. Did you do this on purpose? Like you, did you only give me four days because I, you knew that I couldn't make it up? So, he, so they gave us four days to to pull all this huge list, huge list together before they came in, and they 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 did this massive due diligence. Um, it was there was um, all day long. This, I think it was seven hours worth of meeting, uh, where they they lifted every single rock there was to 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 lift. Uh, and they were very, very diligent. But when it came to answer your question, when it came to the terms, the negotiation, the negotiation, negotiation of the terms, they were, of course, they were, you know, harsh. I mean, they were leading the round with major strategic, kind of a dream, dream couple, if you will, you know, a consumer goods oriented VC backed by fellow exit founders and the VC arm of the world's largest cycling player. It's like, where do I sign? But then again, you can't just say yes to anything. We have an existing valuation. We have existing shareholders. We have metrics. We had, unfortunately, we had a large number, larger number of rounds prior to Series A because of the pivot. So we didn't, you know, this we didn't just start out from scratch. You know, new company, new cap table, new shareholders. We maintained everything out of trust, out of gratitude. I think to our investors that you know. They saw us through the hard tumbles uh, and they, it was just only right to continue, you know, uh, using the same vehicle, even if it meant more dilution to us and, and you know, uh, more, let's say, butchered cap table. We still maintained it. So it was hardly a classic Series A stage company because we had more rounds prior. We had uh, more dilution than normal. Uh, we had a pivot in the middle. We had solid number of shareholders, which isn't necessarily a good thing when you come into Series A, like too large of a cap table. So you had all these things. Plus, it was it was a shitty time to raise, right? 2022. But then again, it was then that told us to open the round at a shitty moment, nonetheless. But so there was this kind of, you know, to and fro that, that was, was going on. And yeah, of course, they were harsh, but they were also fair. And they didn't ask for anything that we didn't have in place before, almost. Um, and at that point, we were thankfully pretty well-versed in terms of, you know, corporate governance, um, board mechanics, liquidation preferences, anti-dilution mechanics, uh, the whole work. So it was a it was kind of smooth sailing from that end because they didn't ask for anything crazy. and. I think at one point they also were, this is me thinking out loud, but they were also considering their relationship with our existing shareholders. It's like, if you come in, you know, kick the table, kick the board out and you say, this is, these are the terms now, then you might, you might be able to pull it out to pull it off, but probably everyone's going to hate you for it. You know, you want, you don't want that starting, you know. You want that to be your first step, I think, in a, in a potential future collaboration that it's going to last years. So I think they also concerned themselves with starting on, on the right foot with the shareholders as well as, as a parent and team. So they conducted themselves really well in this scenario. And it didn't end up being the big, big map, Harry Wolf, we, we all pictured going into this, which again, it's not just, hey, they weren't harsh. 
they weren't diligent. They were, but they were just, you know, also logical and, and common sense, which is a lot these days. And, and and that's great to hear in terms of that story. And diligence can be tough. And it's kind of expected these days from VCs. You know, they're the days of kind of like throwing term sheets without seeing anything is gone. Thankfully, I think the world is a better place because of it. Yeah. Um, but I also want to highlight the fact that, you know, the integrity you guys maintain during your downtime when you could have easily shut down that company and started a new one and start fresh and kind of capture more equity for yourself, you know, easier said than done, but not easy in, in my eyes and probably not yours either in terms of the reputation that, that comes with that. Yeah. And how do the, you look at this? How to look at them in the face? It's like, exactly. I, I, we, we couldn't, we, we couldn't live you. with them. Yeah. And, and these, that, that's something that probably also another checkbox for, you know, this VC, you know, Slingshot and the other VCs that came in later of like, look what, how they acted in the, the stand-up integrity they had in this most difficult controversial point of the, the business and how they treated their investors then, you know, it's a positive sign that, you know, you'll treat your investors properly down the road as well. So they didn't want to come in and be unfair to you as well. So you're setting the precedent and every single, and that's something a founder should know is like every term sheet you sign, every investor you come in, like whatever the terms are now, you're setting the precedent for what will come down the road. And the more egregious terms today are going to be either equal and or more egregious down the road. And this investor is probably maybe assuming that you'll need additional capital down the road, maybe from bigger investors. They don't want to come in with excessive terms that will come back to bite them you know, down the road. Because whoever comes, whoever comes new and top always gets the priority. So yeah, I appreciate you sharing that, that story and those insights you know, as you kind of went through that journey. And, you know, when it came to, you know, it sounds like most of the existing investors and the new investors that came in were kind of like herded all together um, from existing investors mostly. But you haven't really talked about how you got all those uh, investors, the original investors to the table in terms of how you got in front of them, how you uh, discovered them and, and got them to invest. And so I want you to touch on that. And another uh, question I want to kind of bring up in a moment is given the dilution that you experienced uh, on the founder side and team side, like how did you guys manage that forward? So let's go to the first question. How did, what was your strategy to getting those early stage investors to kind of believe in and find them and uh, get in front of them? So the, what, what got us our foot at the door really was the lead accelerator for, they, they had, um, I've been very critical of them in a lot of ways as far as the program goes, but as far as the opportunities they afforded us, we closed our first round because of them. They filled in at that point, it was a 600,000 seed round and they filled most of it. And then it was up to us to, I think this was on purpose. Like they, they put in 400 and said, okay, now you go the 200 remain. Proof to me that you can do this. And that sounds fair. We, we ended up going to any, anyone that was close to us that could help friends and family at that point weren't that relevant because the, the amounts were so high. So we ended up pooling some, some wealthy private investors together into a, a decent ticket. And then into, a, I think it was a hundred K or, or 200 K. And then we had another guy come in with, with 16, we ended up oversubscribing, um, I think it was 700, but. It was like this, you know, a big 400,000 $400, check and then smaller spread across tickets. But how, how did you uh, get the smaller guys? So you kind of mentioned they were, you know, high net worth individuals, but how did you get in front of them? If it wasn't friends and family, oh, well, who, who it was, 
we got them through friends and family. It was, it was always warm intros and we were very diligent with our decks, our numbers. And of course we had the Adidas family leading, leading the round, which was something already. But at that point, there wasn't a complete stranger on board besides the lead, the lead um, accelerators group. That it, was, it wasn't actually lead, it was lead shareholders. Amongst them, we had a couple individuals that resonated with our mission the hardest and they were the ones who put in the take-in. So it wasn't everyone inside lead. It was um, mostly Harold Premat, Swiss guy, ex-racing racing driver, super fun guy, and Paul Caicedo, a Colombian family office type type investor, both of whom we are, of course, really, really close to the, by this time. We know their families. They, they know ours. We've met a hundred times. So it, it wasn't really strangers at that point. And then uh, we started being connected to them. So the first strangers we brought in to following rounds were a family office that was an acquaintance of one of our guys. It was always warm intros. But one thing we did we did do every single time is whenever we had an intro, it was like Armageddon. It was full preparation. Like we went in hard. So like no question could go unanswered. No number could be unclear. Uh, we had to know our bits front to back. And we were very... We set a really high bar on our, as far as our decks, our presentation materials, our numbers, our charts, our spreadsheets, our math. Everything was very, very clear from, from the get go. Managing cap table throughout, cap tables throughout the process. Also a very useful and unexpected skill because a lot of these guys are very active and they kind of, they, they want to keep a certain amount of equity in your business. And if you provide constant updating of that number over the years, they're going to help out. They're going to, you know, be active. And every, we were lucky enough to get, get people in that every single time we raced and we probably raced too many times too often out of, you know, attempt, it was an attempt to reduce risk on the investor side, but it wasn't, it was a mistake too, because it really hurt the cap table to race so many times without dramatic value increases between, between routes that that's a, that's a learning we take home from that period. Were you guys using like convertible nodes or safes in between kind of these larger rounds and consolidating them together? Like, was that the makeup? We did. At one point we did, but a lot of these guys are like, you know, traditional minded uh, people, not used to, uh, to venture capital type investments, not super experienced angel, angel investors either. So the language that they understood was a price route. It's like, I give you X money, you give me X equity. Let's go full value alignment. Don't, you know, don't talk to me about caps, discounts, you know, timeout periods, anything. So we ended up doing that way, taking that road, which also was hurtful in the long run. And so too many rounds too close together without big valuation jumps is clearly not the way to go. But one thing we did build over time with these guys was a relationship. I mean, they saw us bust our asses night and day. They saw us promise, they saw us deliver. They saw us go to China. They saw us, you know, they were, these are hard promises that we, we were fulfilling. So I think they, they, they took that to heart. And every single time we had a, a need for capital, they chipped in. Every single one of them, every single time. That is until a Series A came, which was bigger money and, and bigger tickets. And I think the, most of them said, I've done my job. I, 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 you know, I've got them this far. Now it's time for someone else to, to take the gig. <laughs> So uh, to be honest, like uh, what you experience is what a lot 
of companies are dealing with right now. Kind of these rolling saves or like these kind of roll consistent rounds of like small checks, you know, small rounds kind of coming in to kind of keep the business, you know, to the point where, you know, you still have the opportunity to win. As much as it's nice to get the full lump sum all at once, the reality is it's hard, you know, like certain metrics have to be in, you gotta, it's a whole process to kind of do a proper, you know, equity round. So what you experience is not unusual. And I'm kind of glad you shared that just so people are looking at this, you know, you guys as, oh, we just got all your investors handed to you on a silver platter. It doesn't sound like that at all. It sounds like you had quite the, the struggle and journey to kind of get to the point where you had this opportunity. But as a last question before, you know, to wrap up, I do want to talk about, you know, given all those rounds, you know, the dilution between three founders, uh, it must have been pretty, you know, substantial. What have you guys done? How's been like the you know, morale in that aspect? Because, you know, taking that type of dilution, were there additional option pools granted to you to kind of, you know, give you additional vesting options? Like just kind of walk through that kind of process. So just kind of share some insights to founders that might have gone through it or might be going through it. That, of course, was the chief downside to multiple rounds and too many rounds uh, too often and the cap table got hurt that way. But again, because we were dealing with people that were in it from the start that had established a relationship, a trusting relationship at this point, they also saw that. But, and before Series A got even open, uh, what we did is we liquidated the option pool that we had in place. We just allocated all those points to the founding team and, and some senior staff and then rehashed it. It's like we gave them all away and then built a new one prior to the round even opening, which was, of course, dilutive to everyone, mind you. Uh, but it was a way to, to refill some of that equity that was lost along the way and put us in a position that was more consistent of a, of a unaccustomed Zero's A prerequisite. It wasn't even there, I mean, but it was closer at least. And then the VCs that came in again, also speaks to their integrity uh, as VCs and also speaks to the kind of uh, relationship that they want to have with us founders. They also acknowledge this and they actually, which was a complete surprise to me, and it, I'm not sure if it's even common market practice at this point, but they allocated an extra point, an extra couple of points to be added onto the pool after the fact, after the round, to kind of soften the blow dilution-wise specifically for us founders. Also another good sign that, you know, you're getting, you're getting in bed with the right people and people always joke and you, you, you hear these cliches thrown around that, you know, investors like a, it's like a spouse of sorts. It kind of is in a way that I think a founder is like more of a, a spouse. Like I see, I see my, my co-founders every single day. Um, they're like brothers to me at this point, but that doesn't mean an investor is not a long committed relationship that it's hard to get out of. And it, it is. And, you know, to me, stuff like that matters because it, it, it says a lot. It says that you're getting on a boat with the right kind of people and they have a similar kind of mind and, and reasoning and they're common sense and they're also compassionate when they very well could not be. Like, no one asked them for this. They volunteered it. Uh, no one asked them to respect most of the standing terms we have with, with our investors. They did. So I think that maybe I got this, I, we were super lucky in terms of what VCs we, we got, but the, the two that we have on board, the, the two we have on board is, or, or three, I should say, are super, super reasonable, more so than I ever imagined. And I'm grateful for that. I'm not sure how representative of reality this is or how useful it's going to be for other founders. Maybe everyone else, you know, it's, it's the demon that we had. Of foreseeing 
I don't know. It is actually. I wouldn't say it's the most common thing, but when you have multiple dilutive rounds, smart VCs know that adding an option pool post-close or, you know, kind of post-money uh, is the right gesture because they're sacrificing a pretty insignificant amount on their side, but it's a major impact to, to the founders to kind of, you know, motivate them. And it's a negotiation chip for founders too if it doesn't come up with a discussion. Like negotiating term sheets is a two-way conversation. You don't have to accept every term given to you. Yeah. Um, and, uh, it just sounds like, you know, you were fortunate enough to, to have some amazing VCs join your, your team and, or join your, your cap table and, you know, understanding that it's a long-term game and properly incentivizing you. So I'm glad you shared that just because that is something a lot of founders face. I've heard some really horror stories that were awful and have experienced both positive and negative outcomes in these uh, situations in my own businesses. Uh, so I appreciate you sharing these insights. This has been an incredible you know, time listening to to your journey and your story of just, you know, globally distributed team that's servicing multiple different markets and having multiple different raises, you know, two lives, essentially, you know, as a company. Uh, yeah, so it's been a fascinating story. And it, honestly, it's a, it's a more common story in my mind of what I've experienced amongst our community and network. You know, not, you know, it's like the very small percentage of companies that are just like perfect straight up and to the right. And in reality, you know, that it can be a very bumpy ride. And you guys are getting that chance to to kind of you know, continue on your journeys with the right partners on your side. So I you know, really appreciate you having on the show for, for the cyclists, the boarders, the you know, e-skaters out here that are listening today, you know, where can they learn about your products and yeah, you know, learn more about you? Sure. So, uh, you can always find what we're up to, uh, at unitonegear.com. Um, there's our growing product portfolio of safety accessories is there starting with Thoro. We have a new helmet coming up, uh, smart lights, backpack, the whole ecosystem for mobility. It's, it's, it's being born right, right now. Very exciting times. Uh, again, part of the, part of what this round has done for us is spreading fuel in the, in, in, in the car and, and just enabling us to, to speed up and start growing this, this portfolio rapidly, growing the team, growing adding more tech, more production to the mix. It's a very, very exciting time for us. And it's all there at unitonegear.com. We also have um, our latest Kickstarter launch just closed last week. Where, so we shifted into Indiegogo. Uh, we, we can find us there as well. The whole Aura family, uh, hybrid smart helmet, smart lights, it's all there um, to be delivered by the end of the year. So yeah, a lot, a lot is going to happen over the next uh, twelve to eighteen months, product-wise, market-wise. It's 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 a fun ride. They we're we're barely getting started, and it's very very exciting time. Awesome. Well, I think it's going to be on my Christmas list. Uh, I've already said it to my wife, and uh, yeah, I'm well, excited to. Yeah. If she's um, worried about you, there's there's this crash detection thing we have on the helmet. Like they, she can know if you had a crash with with your location. So this is going to be a, a good, a good argument for you to get it on the tree, like for real. Yeah, I think my wife will buy it even if I don't. If, even if I didn't want it, if she knows about it, she's going to buy it just for those reasons alone. So, uh-huh. um, you know, really appreciate you having me on the show, Juan. This has been an amazing you know, podcast, and uh, you know, thanks for joining us. Absolute pleasure. 